Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers' books are so green, you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon-neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders, and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. All right, in this session, I had the pleasure of catching up again with Neil Spackman, one of the primary designers and organizers of the Albeda Project in Saudi Arabia. The Albeda Project began in 2009 with a long list of lofty ambitions, and among them, they aimed to improve the local economy, act as a model for sustainable development in the Arabian Peninsula, reduce dependence on government handouts for the community, and store and harvest rainwater in the landscape through the restoration of the savanna ecosystem, which had been desertified in only a few decades. Now, this is the second interview that I've done with Neil on his work in Saudi Arabia, and this time around, we went in even greater depth on the details and context of the project that informed the design and decision-making process. Now, if you're interested in dryland and desert regeneration, I highly recommend taking the time to listen to the first episode, even though this one stands well on its own. In this interview, we revisit the history of the region and how the government policies had major impacts on the lives of the nomadic Bedouin people and in turn their relationship with the ecology of Albeda. Neil walks me through the planning and design process that preceded the work and how the cultural context of the project played a big role in setting the goals for a more sustainable economy for the area. We also dig into the biggest takeaways from 10 years of the largest desert regeneration attempt yet made in Saudi Arabia. From there, Neil even talks about his new projects and how his return to academia has informed a new approach to degraded land restoration, as well as how farming can be leveraged as an ecological asset. Neil makes a lot of great recommendations towards the end for resources, including books and videos that help to inspire and inform him of these ambitious projects. So be sure to check out the resources section under this episode on the website. Now we cover a lot of ground in this session, so I'll turn things over now to Neil. Hey, Neil, it's so great to be talking to you again. Thanks for making time to be back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, it's been a little while since we chatted in person like this, though I've been following your progress on social media and all of the great resources you've been publishing for a while. But what do you say we just jump into the interview so we can catch up on all the new projects you've been up to? Sounds good. All right, so just quickly, for those interested in hearing about your background and further information about the Albeda project, which we'll talk about in a second, um, I'll let them refer back to our original interview at the Abundant Edge website, and I'll put the links in the show notes uh, for this episode so that they can go right to the start. But with that out of the way, why don't we start by getting a little update on the Albeda project? What were some of the original goals of that project that you were able to reach in the years that you were out there? Oh, that we were able to reach. Um, we did successfully build a template for, well, the yeah, the short version is we've successfully got a template for the, uh, to restore ecological function and build a new regenerative economy in that area of Saudi Arabia. Now, that's a pretty broad outlook there. Can you talk about some of the specifics and how kind of from where it started to where it is now, the steps kind of facilitated a change to something that kind of made a tangible impact for the community there? Yeah, I mean, it was the the specifics of that are, you know, we have this region that's about 700 square kilometers um, but it's also a a fractal of the much larger region. I mean, the whole west coast of the Arabian Peninsula follows the same geographic pattern, and it's all a fractal. 
And so what we worked on was a very small watershed. You know, we've got a mountain summit, we've got valleys that flood, and we've got a flood plain. Um, and that site was about 100 acres. And so on that site, I designed and worked with local folks to build essentially a, a template for the reforestation of this region. And then forestry, it might be too strong a word. It's, it's closer to a, like a dryland savanna than it is a forest. But we, we have successfully done that where we're harvesting floods out of the mountains, getting that water into the ground instead of letting it run off into the sea. Um, and then using a portion of that water going into the ground to reestablish vegetation, which involves both, you know, grasses for grazing as well as uh, appropriate tree crops and native trees that are, you know, regrowing. It, it might be useful to talk to to uh, bring up that this is after 60 years of desertification, which was largely driven by policy changes and the elimination of a traditional management system for that land. Sure, yeah, this uh, can be brought back way further because yeah. the Arabian Peninsula, I mean, if you go back to when people first inhabited that area, it was much more lush and part of the area that was considered the Fertile Crescent, no? Well, the Fertile Crescent's up north, uh, but yeah, during, I mean, when there were rivers in the Arabian Peninsula, it was during the last ice age, is my understanding. Um, and the drying up of, of that is, you know, it's debated how much of that was driven by people and how much of it was driven by, um, you know, larger climatic patterns that people can't really affect. Okay. Um, but there's no question that the, what we don't see in, in the Arabian Peninsula that we do see in the Fertile Crescent is uh, salinization driven by irrigation. For instance, if in modern-day Iraq, you know, they irrigated for hundreds and hundreds of years back in the, you know, Assyrian and Babylonian times. And when their land could no longer produce crops because of the salinization caused by the irrigation, um, that led to a, a diaspora. That's where the Phoenicians came from. Phoenicians um, were Babylonians who went to Lebanon, quickly deforested those mountains um, using the same agricultural techniques they had used you know, on the Euphrates. Um, and then after they had you know, eliminated most of the soil there, they had to become traders along the Mediterranean because they didn't have any other option. Um, in, the, in the Arabian Peninsula, you don't have that farming um, effect, uh, at, least in, at least in the parts where I've been, in Mecca, north of there, or east of there, um, there's not a strong history of farming. If you go south towards Yemen, then there absolutely is. But there's a, there was a pattern called, or a management system called the Hima. The Hima was used throughout the Arabian Peninsula, and it was a management system that predates Islam. Um, so at least a couple thousand years old and potentially older than that. And this was a tribal management system where they maintained the fertility of the land by strict management of who could graze where and when whose animals got which part of the tribal land, et cetera, et cetera. And that system was eliminated in the 1950s, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in Syria, um, in the Eastern Gulf, um, as a drive to build you know, a nation state instead of just having tribes everywhere. Um, and that was really the catalyst for wide-scale deforestation and desertification, because you, you, the... Once the management system collapsed, um, then it was just a free-for-all on grazing and cutting down wood. And as the people were unable to feed their animals due to you know, mismanaged grazing, 
Then they had to buy imported feed and they got cash for buying imported feed by selling wood. So there's been this, this um, downward spiral driven by a mix of policy changes and people responding to the incentives that those policies created. Um, and then you get this, you know, direct link between rural poverty and ecological degradation that is a, a global pattern. Um, yeah, absolutely. That we see very, very starkly in a place as dry and hot um, as Mecca. And so with the context of those changes for the societies that traditionally ha inhabited that land and the massive uh, ecological changes that accompany it, what were some of the first strategies that you recommended for the project to follow to start to reverse uh, the impact that had been done over the last 70 years? Uh, well, the most fundamental had to do with water. Like, like you always start with your limiting resource, right? And in some places that sunlight, where we are, it's water. And so it was, how do we, how do we um, get things to grow that we can eat or sell uh, without depleting the aquifers. Um, and Saudi, I mean, Saudi Arabia has depleted the bulk of its aquifers over the last generation. Um, in the 70s and 80s, they had a policy to be food independent. And so they were growing wheat with fossil water you know, at around a cost of $1,000 per bushel, when on the global market, it was, you know, $300 per bushel. Um, and they consumed 4,000 or 400 cubic kilometers of water, you know, in a matter of decades. And that's, that's a huge amount of water. It's hard to fathom how much that is, but it's essentially Lake Erie. Wow. Like if Lake Erie just disappeared, that's how much water they used up um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then they, they figured out that, uh, you know, they were essentially exporting water. Um, and that's the virtual water concept. And so for us, it was how do we create a system that restores aquifers while making the land more lush? Which using is the water resources to its maximum and seeing how many ways that it can be used before it leaves the site, essentially. Yeah, or, or um, that's, that's essentially it. Um, but the goal was increase water resources in the desert while also increasing, you know, the carrying capacity of the land to support life. And those things on initial thought seem contradictory. Because if you're using up water to grow things, then you should have less water. Um, and we actually didn't do that. We have more water and more life. Um, and so the let's way talk a little bit about how that can be manufactured or designed for uh, when they seemingly contradict each other, especially in the space where you know water evaporates off and is used up so quickly, or or, or you know leaves the site very very quickly. Yep, well, and that, that was the key, was understanding the water cycle and figuring out where, you know, waste was happening, let's say. Um, for us, the, the, on the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula, you have these massive floods where 80% of that water runs into the Red Sea. Um, 80, 90%. And it's, it's the only sustainable source of water in the region because we're i mean it runs into the sea and then we're desalinating water from the sea um you know to to serve the cities and and um and industry as well sure at a much much higher cost than it would be probably to, oh, at, to at capture the water cost. at a at a freshwater state yeah exactly um so that was i mean it, it just it seems so simple, but essentially we looked at the floods and said, okay, these are not, these may be a destructive disaster that we need to be afraid of because they're dangerous, but it's also the only source of water that we should be using. Because um, if we, 
I mean, that water is what recharges the shallow wells and the shallow aquifers um, at a lesser and lesser rate as deforestation and desertification increases. And so it was, let's, let's harvest these floods. And instead of letting them run off into the sea or run off of our site, let's get that water in the ground, recharge the groundwater, and then um, use that to get an ecology going again. And so on, on this 100-acre site that we had, which is about, you know, 70, 60%, 70% of it is mountains, and, you know, a third or so is the, the floodplain. So it's at least a two-to-one ratio of runoff to catchment. But we used up 20,000 cubic meters in irrigation to get our savanna system going. And we caught, you know, between 50,000 cubic meters in that same period. So we, we've got at least two times more water going into the ground than we're taking out. Um, and now that we're not irrigating anymore, we cut the irrigation in 2016. Now it's just there's a greater percentage of that water, of that rainfall, that is effective instead of running off and evaporating or, or hitting the sea. So let's start from the beginning here and talk a little bit about how you came to these design decisions that you felt would be correct to the context in which you were working, because that's kind of everything. Um, oh. How did you sort of start to research the plants that would be appropriate that you thought had the best chance of survival while still respecting sort of native species and what was available? Uh, I don't know how budget factored into those plans. Give me yeah. an idea about how you arrived at some of these uh, strategies that you implemented from the beginning, because nothing like this had really been done or in intended before in this area. What were some of That's your correct. references that you looked to to kind of inform the decision-making process? So there's, there are some great sources academically for desert work. One is called The Challenge of the Desert, and it's about um, restoring traditional farming methods in the Negev. Um, there was a lot of relevant material there that I learned from. Um, I did have a two-week period with Jeff Lawton where he and I essentially were one-on-one -on -one, um, and hashing over different design ideas and different aspects of different things. He actually helped me pick the demonstration site because he, he had a better idea of what to look for than I did at that point. Um, but the... The design decisions with respect to the water are way different than with respect to, you know, the species we were using. For the species we were using, I did something called a climate analog where you, you know, and, and I've got, there, there's a great resource on how to build a climate analog from that Andrew Millison did at the University of Oregon um, that actually cites me quite a bit. But essentially, you, you look at your latitude, your climate, your elevation, your distance to the nearest large body of water, you know, your precipitation rates, your, your um, diurnal temperature swings, all these different factors. And then you can fly around the world on Google Earth and find very, very similar locations that have the same kind of conditions that you're working in. And you can identify those places and then do some research on what did, how did the indigenous people in those places live? Um, what were their buildings like? What were their food systems like? Were they gardeners? Were they nomads? Um, were they camel people? Were they sheep people? Were they, you know, cattle people? And you, and you look at these indigenous systems around the world that match your climatic conditions. Um, and then you can, you can take bits and pieces of those that are, you know, appropriate for where you are, you know, both the climatic context, the geographical context, the, and the cultural and the people context as well. And though, that's what essentially gave me, you know, a list of species to to trial 
Um, and we trialed 15 different species on the Albeda demonstration site. And um, after we cut the irrigation in 2016, it was kind of a let's wait and see what survives the best, what produces the best, um, and what isn't going to make it. And so out of those 15 species, we ended up with four that, you know, can handle the climate, function as an ecology, that aren't going to, you know, be destructive in any sense, um, but that are also going to produce um, very useful goods that fit together, you know, as a cohesive economy and a cohesive ecology. And so I know a, a big aspect of this design was the cultural context in which you were working to and understanding yeah. the lifestyles yeah. and the aspirations of the people that were going to be interacting with this system. Could you speak on that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is arguably the most important part because if, um, if people don't want to adopt what you're teaching them, then it's, it's no good in the first place. And so the the folks uh, I was working with there, you know, they were they had a very nomadic history. Um, they know camels and goats and sheep really well. Um, they that's where all of their expertise is centered in uh, the management and use of those animals to to provide a life. And so we knew that grazing had to be because of the culture the system had to be aimed at restoring sustainable grazing patterns while introducing some resilience both ecological and economic to that system and so we started with um, the idea that you know in the future people would still be grazing they would still be producing milk and animal skins and meat um, and so we look for a way to enhance that and get it to fit into a process of regeneration rather than a process of, of deforestation. Yeah, I'm starting to learn some of the intricacies and the differences of the cultures and the ways of life here in uh, the Arabian Gulf. As I'm at the moment in Kuwait and I'm learning a lot through my sister who studied these much in the same academic form that you did. and. It's absolutely fascinating, the, the histories of how people lived in, I mean, certainly in, in modern history, this has been what is considered a very marginal land where a lot of the population centers have been centered around the coast and around fishing and uh, the nomadic tribes operating in the interior and how that's yep. affected the ecology of these areas is absolutely fascinating. And I'm really trying to understand this more in the short time that I have here. Um, hmm. Now, we're not going to focus entirely on Albeda throughout this interview, but before you um, kind of wrap up and move on to your other projects, can you tell me about some of the biggest takeaways and the learning experiences for you personally since the project began? Oh, goodness. Well, first of all, it's possible. You had your doubts at the beginning? Well, we didn't know. Yeah. Um, we didn't know. If, if I mean, it's... Um, we're, we're in a really, really bad area. I mean, nobody looks at this region and says that that's good, you know, agricultural land. It's, it's not considered arable. Um, and the, so it is possible. Um, and I believe it can even be profitable in the long run and with the right kind of financial structures. Um, beyond that, uh, I learned a lot about politics, to be honest. I mean, we, the, mm. where we did slow down, where we did come into, you know, bottlenecks, and, and actually where the project is bottlenecked now, um, has more to do with politics than anything else. Um, and, and that's so common, actually. It's it is, yeah, from the it's other people so that I've talked to, doing especially things that are involving public pieces and have government bodies of, and uh, corporations interested in the results. That's a yep. lot of what I've heard. Yep, it's it's very very common, and so I've had to I've had to learn a lot about 
uh, maneuvering those and negotiating them. And, and I haven't learned as much as I could have because once things really got bogged down, I, I um, decided I was going to leave and go back to school <laughs> and well, see if, see if the politics would work their way out or not. Hmm. Um, I will say that there's been a, there was a lot, I think there was a lot of trepidation among my network that I was moving out with these folks um, to live with the Bedou in Albela. And there, it took a long time for me to gain the trust of the people, but um, there are bonds there that are never going to be broken. Mm. And um, that, that, that cultural and people piece of it like I know we're focused so much on environment and environmental issues, um, but we cannot solve those without involving the people who are local and who are indigenous and who, um, you know, have a long history and a long attachment and deep, deep attachment to the land. I don't know. I don't, I don't think most Americans really understand how traditional peoples are attached to the land they're on. Um, Cause we're so mobile and we move around all the time. And even though these folks were nomads, you know, it was, it was a specific nomadism to a specific place. And that land is a huge piece of their identity. Um, and that's not something that we, um, understand on a visceral level as Americans most of the time. But the, I mean, fundamentally, if, if those folks aren't a part of the solution, then you don't have a solution. You've sort of, you've, you've accomplished something that I consider really admirable, which is that you, at this point, you're kind of barely involved and you've turned the project almost over entirely to the people who are on the ground working. And I'm not sure whoever else is involved at the, the higher levels of uh, planning and organization. Is that always your goal or has it simply been uh, a question of reaching a point where you're not needed for it to continue? That was always the goal. Yeah, it was always the goal to, and, and it should always be the goal to turn management over to local management. Um, so right now my involvement is I'm still an advisor on the project. Um, the, the person who, who funded this is named uh, Haifa Alfaisal. She's the youngest daughter of the late King Faisal. Um, and she, she was the founder and the funder primarily. And she's still very much involved, particularly in the housing infrastructure and charity aspects of the project. Um, I, so I will say this, we, the Al-Baitha project was named Saudi Arabia's national prototype for housing development. Mm. Um, about 18 months ago and, and where, because we're the first ones where, where we were like, okay, we want to do housing, but unless there's an economy associated with the region, then there's not going to be any reason for people to live there. Right. Um, right. People, people will move to the cities as, as we have seen, you know, all over the planet, if there isn't a local economy keeping them there. And, that approach and some of the successes we had in, you know, teaching people how to build, teaching people how to reforest, teaching people how to harvest water, led to our being named the national housing prototype. So once, once Albeda has reached a certain level of success, um, there are a number of ministries that have said, if this works, we are going to do it all over the country. Wow. Uh, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a huge success. That is. Um, and it, the Ministry of Housing is now funding the, the building of, I believe, 220 housing units as a phase one for our, for our housing complex. So right next to our demo site, we have a, a housing development underway. Um, we got a police station in the region for the first time, which people really wanted. Um, we got an ambulance and emergency services in there, which the people really needed because otherwise the closest hospital is in Mecca. And for parts of El Beda, that's an hour and a half away. Um, 
and a lot of them don't have access to vehicles. So, you know, getting ambulances there was a big deal. We got cell phone service in the region established. We got, I mean, it was, it was Princess Haifa who got the electricity company to install most of the people onto the grid in 2009. So there's been a lot of things happen outside of the, you know, environmental regeneration piece, which was my primary responsibility, um, that there, there's a lot to be proud of with this project. Um, and so they're, they're essentially watching to see if we can, if, you know, the project can pull off this comprehensive development. And then they've said, if it works out, then we will fund, you know, a thousand more like it. That's absolutely remarkable. Now, from the perspective, as you see it now, do you think that the, the caring capacity of these ecosystems as they regenerate can continue to support the population booms that are being proposed? Um, there, well, there isn't a population boom happening in the rural areas. Um, there's a population boom happening in the cities. And mm. I, think, I think as more women are educated and as um, they change, they've changed a whole bunch of subsidies, they've changed a whole bunch of things that, you know, will certainly have some unintended consequences, but one of those will be the, uh, a fall in the birth rate is, yeah. is quite likely. Um, I mean, I don't, I suspect that for instance, um, I had a worker who had two wives and 13 children. Um, but he's also in his sixties and I don't, I don't perceive that the, the men in their twenties are going to have more than one wife. Um, and probably not more than, you know, five or six kids instead of, you know, double digits. <laughs> That's yeah. in the rural areas. In the urban areas, it's a very different story. Mm. I right? mean, yeah, there's always big differences from those regions, sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's change gears for a second here and switch over to talking about some of the newer projects that you're working on. Um, you decided to go back to school while you were working on this project. And as a student at the Stanford, I believe it's the MSX master's program. Could you That's right. talk a little bit about how the focus of your continued education fits into your aspiration for further ecosystem regeneration projects? Yeah. So we had this great thing in Saudi Arabia going and I was like, okay, I know that I can do the environmental part. Um, but how do I turn this into enterprises? That was, that was the fundamental reason why I decided on, you know, going to a business school. And in part, that was just to learn the process of, you know, being an entrepreneur and hopefully avoiding mistakes as I do that. Part of that was also because, you know, my professional network is limited to you know, tribes of Bedouin in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, and a few it's members somewhat of, of a niche, sure. Yeah, I, I had no network in the U.S. aside from the handful of, you know, permaculture folks who, who have been following me. Um, so I, I knew that I needed to develop that more. Um, and then it was to, I picked Stanford because not because it's Stanford, but because I thought the that I would find the individuals who have the resources to fund the kind of enterprises that uh, that I intend to create. And so, and and I decided on you know enterprise and business because I think if we are looking at you know regeneration or or restoring ecological function. I, I'm not a big believer in the conservation model. Yeah. You know, conservation is we're going to set apart this piece of earth and nobody gets to go there and we're just going to leave it alone. Um, and everything else gets to be destroyed. Right. It almost gives license for all the rest of it to be explored. Almost. 
almost and 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 that's just known as the sparing model of agriculture yeah and and i'm a believer in the sharing model of agriculture that's not to say that conservation isn't important or that you know on a granular scale that it fails conservation is really important but it's not enough to solve the problems that we face because even though we have lots of conservation we're still destroying ecosystems and the foundations of you know our civilized life well and the other the other piece of that is that with conservation you're always asking for money from somebody else right you're it's you're it's hard to get that to justify itself at least in the way that we value things economically well yeah but also as a nonprofit you're you're a professional begging organization right I've, uh, yeah i've come over those same conflicts myself and so what i wanted was something where there is a financial engine driving the expansion of ecological regeneration um and and so i i i've been setting out to create enterprises that do that where they're profitable but by virtue of their operations ecologies and ecosystems are being restored on places where they've been degraded whether that's you know conventional ag land or desertified land or degraded or you know what have you in terms of degraded landscapes that's that's what i was looking for um and and stanford did a lot of that actually it was a one year program it was a phenomenal year um and um and now i'm starting a business well, let's jump right into that then. Let's talk about your new <laughs> endeavor, <laughs> regenerative resources. You've been alluding to this new project for, for a little while now. I'm really excited to hear where this is headed. You want to break so, it down? Yeah, well, I was in Stanford. Um, there's a sustainability center there called the Tomcat Center for, Sustain for Sustainable Energy. But they also dabble in other aspects of sustainability. And... Um, I had a lot of support there and they introduced me to some folks who have been involved in something called integrated seawater agriculture. And this is a concept that was, um, I don't want to say invented, but founded by a scientist named Carl Hodges. And Carl was one of the founders of Biosphere 2. Um, he was uh, an academic primarily, but also an inventor. And he came up with this system of using seawater um, to grow food through um, a combination of mangrove agroforestry, halophytes, which are plants that grow in seawater, and aquaculture. So, uh, and they did, they did a system in Eritrea from 1999 to 2003, where they were exporting shrimp and tilapia to Europe um, while growing new mangrove forests um, mm. as an integral part of the process. So what they would do is they would do this aquaculture, they would use the effluent from the aquaculture um, to flood constructed wetlands where they would grow mangrove forests. But then they would manage those mangrove forests to create all the feed for the aquaculture. Right. So you start with a desert coast um, where there's nothing. You do aquaculture, which aquaculture tends to be quite polluting because usually the effluent just goes into the ocean. Um, and instead they're creating an ecology that absorbs that effluent and in turn produces the feed for the aquaculture. It's, it's a beautiful, elegant system. Um, and one of the effects of that system is the creation of freshwater lenses uphill of that system. So you get these new, um, so a freshwater lens is, is how uh, the Pacific Islands have fresh water. You have a layer of seawater in the land and then when it rains and that rain is absorbed by the land it cre it sits on top of the seawater 
And that's why it's called the freshwater lens. And that's one of the effects of this system where you get a massive increase in the amount of fresh water in the ground because it's, it's forming this lens instead of running off into the ocean, um, which in turn you can use to do dry land agroforestry, which is what I was doing in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So we, I met with these guys who had done this in Eritrea, and they said, we're trying to get this done in Mexico. Why don't you, you know, join us as a co-founder and uh, let's, let's build this. And that sounded fantastic to me. So we have, um, we have founded Regenerative Resources Corporation. And we will be, um, the business is essentially um, a combination of mangrove agroforestry, um, seawater aquaculture, and dry land agroforestry. Um, but we're also incorporating, you know, real estate into the business model because we're, you know, taking desolate landscapes that aren't worth very much and converting them into productive ecologies. Um, and then there's an ecological services component to the business model as well. There's a lot but of boxes we, ticked there. It seems like there's going to be quite a bit of complexity in the way that those cycles interweave. Yep. It's very complex. And in fact, I, that being able to manage that complexity is, I think, one of our comparative advantages. Mm. Um, but I also think that we can um, have a cost advantage. Uh, so we, in some ways, were the world's first regenerative shrimp company. Um, because we're, we are farming shrimp, but as an integral part of that operation, we are growing new mangrove forests. Um, and there's no pollution. There's no um, use that we don't need to use synthetic fertilizers. There's no pesticide, herbicide, or fungicide used in the feed that we grow. Um, and we're not polluting the ocean. Um, and at the same time, we're not using, you know, um, monocrop soy in our feed and so it's there's a, a real advantage there there's a lot of advantages there actually that that we're going to be utilizing and so we on our first site we think we'll break ground in february or march of 2020 sometime q1 2020 and hopefully have our first shrimp for sale q1 of 2021 that's remarkable. It's really exciting to hear about this getting off the ground and the potential that it has, especially in these ecosystems that are all but abandoned at this point and many people have given up on. And I really yeah. like the approach that you're looking at it with. It's almost like the ecosystem generation is, is really the larger point. It's, it's the main goal. But a lot of people see that as something that has to be facilitated by outside donors or there can't yeah. be some kind of other economic aspect to it. Whereas you're using yeah. farming and real estate development, which are often kind of pointed at as villains that can destroy ecosystems and using them as tools to reach this larger goal to restore That's exactly the it. potential. That's incredible. And it's, uh, it's really wonderful to hear this, this general attitude being applied to more and more enterprises. It's very similar to what I've heard from like Mark Shepard using uh, yep. The example of him trying to regenerate a savanna, an oak savanna in the Midwest and using agriculture as the tool to do so. It's really yep. flipping the narrative on what people generally consider to be destructive forces and leveraging them to, to fast track these things, not just uh, allow them to regenerate over sort of geological time as they did to begin with. That's exactly right. And there's, there's some really really curious aspects to this that sometimes I think back and I'm like, this is just, this is crazy. Like, um, I mean, when we launch our shrimp brand, the more shrimp people eat, the more ecology we can grow. So it's a virtuous consumption. Yeah. Right. Which is, that this is, is everything just... you've always looked for at the grocery <laughs> store, right? At this point, we're still stuck in the cycle of trying to do less bad with our cons with our consumption. And well, exactly, and, and it's, a tool. it's it's taking 
when we talk about working with nature, it doesn't just mean working with ecologies, you know, and taking advantage of the efficiencies of ecology. It also means working with human nature, right? And human nature is to consume and hoard and acquire. <laughs> um, and is, is there a way to harness that to make a positive impact? Um, and I think that's what we're doing. You know, the, the concept of virtuous consumption is it like, there's a big part of me that's like, no, it's wrong. You know, um, it's what we've been taught for so long. Well, and, and, and it's in this circumstance, we are creating a thing where the more you consume, the better it is for the planet. And, yeah, and the that's are massive. The implications are massive. And, and I didn't realize, you know, until maybe this was six months ago, thinking through this, where I was like, wait a minute, this completely flips everything on its head. Um, and uh, so I'm extremely excited to be involved in this and to be um, helping to drive this process of, you know, entrepreneurship and creation and regeneration and restoration. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm extremely excited about it. Hey, me too. Now, before I let you go here, I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the other resources that you would encourage other people to look into, because as you've kind of outlined the potential for flipping the consumptive model into one that facilitates regeneration, what have been some of the influential or go-to resources that you've used to kind of come up with this model? Obviously not just from the program that you did in Stanford, um, yeah. but ones that are accessible to listeners out there who can either find it for free or through avenues of direct teaching uh, or, or sorry, mentorship that so help I've, them come up with similar plans for what applies to them in their bioregion. Oh man. Um, well, I'll, I've got my webinar series on YouTube that I did. It's called Sustainable Design Masterclass. And I've got between 150 and 200 hours of webinars on there with some really heroic folks, um, much of which is relevant, you know, to this, to this general discussion. Um, but I also think about, um, you know, William McDonough's Cradle to Cradle book kind of helped shape my mindset on you know, it's not, the problem isn't that people are people. The problem is, you know, the way that we produce, package, transport, and dispose of, you know, the trappings of life. Um, I think about um, the Rocky Mountain Institute's book, uh, Natural Capitalism, mm. um, is, is a fantastic book that um and i i read it in i think i read that book in 2002 and it fundamentally changed how i you know wanted to approach my career um i think those two books in my webinars are a great place to start i do like i do like mark shepherd's restoration agri is it restoration agriculture yeah, that mark restoration did? agriculture yep I, I confuse him and uh, someone else's because there's restoration ag and there's and then there's regenerative ag which uh, regenerative Richard Perkins ag. just put out yeah yep. Yep. Richard just put out regenerative ag which is also awesome he sent me an advanced copy and I highly recommend that he just oh, did his Kickstarter on it yeah that's I'm still working with him to see if we can put out like a, a series that kind of works through the main chapters of the book that may mm. be coming up in the next season if I can get that to work. <laughs> We yeah, Richard. Richard's bright, man. Yeah. That guy. That guy is bright, and yeah. he's he walks the walk. Um, I'm a big fan of Richard's. Likewise, yeah. But yeah. Um, so look, that's I'll where make I sure, would go to. 
I'll make sure that I put links to all of those so listeners can find them real easy on the show notes for this website. And I just want to personally thank you because I'm continuing to work through and even go back to some of my favorite webinars from the Sustainable Masterclass series. Those mm. were just top notch, like all the thanks in the world to you and Riley for all of the work that you did to make those happen. Um, they've been a big kind of accelerator in my research in a lot of those topics that you covered. I really oh, that's great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. No, um, that was <laughs> that was a great side project um, that kind of kept me sane when I was fairly isolated in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and I've even reached out and connected personally with some of the people after seeing what they were doing and yeah. um, took some advice and um, had them kind of give me some new ideas on projects that I was working on when I was back in Guatemala. That was really pivotal. Great. That's awesome. So look, That's um, awesome. Before we get going here, can you tell people how they can find out more about regenerative resources and contact you if they're interested? Oh, goodness. We are, we are building our website as we speak. Um, and uh, the, website is, the website is not live, so I don't want to give you the URL because if you go and look at it now, it's just a mess. Um, but I run the Facebook page called Dryland Restoration. Um, most of the professional stuff I do, I post on there. Mm -hmm. um, I tend, and if you send me a message on LinkedIn or Facebook, I usually respond. Um, don't try to friend me unless we've met, because, <laughs> because yeah, I, I've got a lot of personal stuff on there too. But I do respond to messages. Um, and then if anyone wants to send me an email, I'm at neilspackman at gmail.com. Marvelous. Well, hey, Neil, thanks so much for taking time to uh, catch us up on your projects and a lot of the inspiration for what's upcoming and, and what other people can look forward to and possibly even start to pioneer from their side as well. It's my pleasure, Oliver. All my right. pleasure. Um, well, let's aim to catch up again soon as there's more tangible results from these uh, ongoing projects. I'm really looking forward to, to catching up as those develop. You bet. Let's do it. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, Oliver. Bye-bye. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design, philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at abundantedge.com and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.